This is a Federal News Network podcast. People sometimes overlook the T in USPTO, but trademarks are an important enabler of fair and open commerce. In fact, during the pandemic, applications to the Office of Trademarks, part of the Commerce Department's Patent and Trademark Office, they exploded over last year. For details and how they're coping, the Commissioner for Trademarks, David Gooder. Mr. Gooder, good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Tom. Good morning. All right. So tell us what's been going on with respect to trademark applications rolling in during this period of this past year and a half or so. It was interesting because last winter, trademark filings were, I refer to them as filings or applications, were kind of struggling along and down a little bit. And then the pandemic hit, of course, and everything started dropping because there was so much uncertainty and people bugging out, working from home. Everything was different. And then around April or May, things started to tick up which was a little surprising, actually, given what was going on. And that trend continued and continued through the fall and into the winter until we had two huge months in uh, October and the end of December. And now we sit this year at being about 50% higher than last year and approaching a million applications. So it just has absolutely exploded. A million applications. Wow. And those are coming from the United States mostly or overseas or a mixture? Our applications come from about 200 countries with the biggest percentages from the U.S. And in terms of this growth, the largest growth areas have been from the U.S. and from China, and then smaller amounts from Europe, other countries. And what is the process for getting a trademark approved? Well, a trademark is something that you create in a business and you get rights by actually using the mark. If you want to make them better, stronger, more perfected, et cetera, you apply to register at the USPTO. And so you file an application, the process goes along for a few months, it's examined by an examining attorney, and if everything is good, it gets registered. If there's something wrong with it, for whatever reason, it's not registrable for some reason, the applicant has a chance to respond and try to fix that. What I'm getting at is the influx of this million applications. How are your examiners able to handle this, and are you getting one of those dreaded backlogs building up? Oh, we absolutely have the backlog. And the inventory is significantly higher than it's ever been. So the examiners as a whole, and there are slightly more than 700 trademark examiners, are working like crazy. It, it is a, I came from the private sector to the trademark office to this position, and it is a really professional, hardworking bunch. But the inventory is easily double what it normally is. All right. And you have taken some steps, though, to deal with that. In your recent blog post, you mentioned, let's start with some IT improvements. What are they? And can they happen in time to help speed up things? Yeah, they they can. And the thing about the process is trademarks is a game of lots of small pieces in a sense. So incremental improvements in the process, when you spread that out over hundreds of thousands of applications, become really significant. So something as small as a, a bot application that will go check on suspended applications. And if the reason they're suspended is no longer a problem, that puts them back into the queue. Automating something like that is a small thing. So we're aiming at all these sort of small pain points. And that's an example of one of them. One of the other ones is an application that helps us find specimens that shouldn't have been used or that are being used to try to get around the rules of the office. And oftentimes they're used by dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of applications. And this particular app will look at a specimen of use because you have to prove use to get the registration. That's different than other countries. Our system is more uh, robust in that way. In other words, we prevent every graphic artist from simply having trademarks on something that's never left their studios. 
That's correct. There's no use in the marketplace. You have no real effective trademark rights. So basically by weeding or bleeding small increments of time, such as checking for this or that individually and automating that across a million applications, it adds up to perhaps millions of hours of time saved. Yep, that's the theory. And keeps the examiner's time focused on the stuff that really is important and more critical to a trademark being really solid. We're speaking with David Gooder. He's commissioner for trademarks at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And just one more detail on that is part of the process to make sure that no one else has something that's almost identical out there. You bet it is. So when an application gets filed and, and examined, one of the key things they look at is the legal requirement that it has to be a mark that won't be likely to cause confusion with another previously filed or registered mark. All right. And also, with respect to the backlog, I think you indicated you're trying to hire more examiners. And how did you get the budget for that? And what does it take to be an examiner? Good question. So examiners are attorneys, and some of them come from an intellectual property background, let's say at a private firm, and some come from law school and different parts. But they're all highly trained by us to be able to function as examiners, and they're able to work Uh, We were working almost 70% remotely before the pandemic, so it wasn't a big switch. So examiners come in. We've got a crew that started about two months ago, about 50 examiners, and we're looking to hire 100. In fact, it's open right now to try to deal with this boom. Interesting. And I guess my question is, what in the pandemic do you think sparked a rise in trademark applications or filings of all things? You know, it's a greatly discussed topic as any sort of thing that happens that people kind of scratch their head about. One thing for sure is e-commerce exploded. And so you had a lot of businesses that may have been created during the pandemic or pivoted during the pandemic. Let's say they were selling kitchen towels and then they said, wait a minute, we could make masks. Well, they said, well, we should take our brand and, and apply for it over here. So there was a fair amount of that. I think there were a lot of people at home saying, what do I really want to do? Do I really want to go back to this job or that? Or maybe it's my time. Maybe this is the world's way of pushing me to go do something different. Like I said, e-commerce exploded. The other thing is, is in some foreign countries, notably China, the government in some provinces was providing subsidies for people to apply. So you had a lot of businesses applying because of that. That creates its own set of questions about whether those are actually valid or not. So you have to look at them carefully. And I guess maybe the e-commerce phenomenon has spawned a lot of these applications or filings because... You know, you look at Amazon and you're trying to find a brand name product just to single them out. And all of a sudden, there's 10 cheaper imitations of the same thing under different brands. So that phenomenon of the same thing, only cheaper because I can get it online delivered Tuesday, causes applications. Yeah. And if you look at some of those brands, some of them you can't, they're a seemingly senseless stream of letters and you can't pronounce them. And you look at them and you think, I don't know what that brand is. Is it a brand? I don't know, but I want to buy that thing. Well, in order to take part in Amazon's program called the Brand Registry, you had to have a trademark application, which eventually becomes a registration, hopefully, to get on that. And so a lot of sellers who were pivoting like mad and trying to sell were realizing, oh, maybe I need to file. Well, the answer is you don't really, but they did and filed in huge numbers. And coming to this office recently, I guess this early spring from the private sector where you were an attorney for trademarks for private corporations, what's your view of how it looks from the inside, from the people deciding on these things from the governmental standpoint? You know, it's been a fascinating journey, especially because it's been entirely remote. I got sworn in March 2nd last year. We were all bugged out by around the middle of the month. And you're correct. I've been in private practice. I've been 
chief trademark counsel for a big company. And I got to the office and I had worked with the office for years. You can't be a trademark lawyer in the US and not interact with the trademark office. When I got there, I realized, A, how hard a working a bunch it is. It's an incredibly professional bunch. I mean, there's people who say, well, the lawyers in the private sector, maybe they work harder. Not what I saw. These folks are amazing. And you start to realize that there are so many issues and so many pieces in the cogs in the wheel and all of them matter. And so now a lot of our journey is how do we take that and make sure that it's that it's as compatible as it can be with our customers who are people who file trademark applications, et cetera, and who rely on the policy work we do. And when you come into it, you know, people joke about you never understand how sausage is made until you start working at the factory. And it is fascinating. Well, I have been to USPTO offices. They're lovely. I hope you get back into your own office pretty soon. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, me too. There's not much in mine right now. (laughs) All right. David Gooder is Commissioner for Trademarks at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Take care. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about, but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them 
and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but. Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I, I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, – his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. 
and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.